Pound the Rock is brought to you by the Score Bet. That's right, we brought you the best sports media app. Now we're bringing you the best sports book and casino. Now live in Ontario, the Score Bet offers a safe and secure mobile sportsbook experience with both pregame and in-play markets. But best of all, it's integrated into the Score and our content to give you the easiest and most seamless sports betting experience. Download now on iOS and Android. Available in Ontario only. Must be 19 years of age or older to participate. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call Connects Ontario at 1-866-531-2600. Welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. My name is Joseph Cacharo, and I am joined, as always, by fellow co-host Joe Wolfond. Playoffs? playoffs i just hope we can win a damn game uh i mean billy donovan might be saying that soon because i think the bulls are the the one team we might both pick in for a sweep here anyway we'll get to all that fun stuff prediction series breakdowns uh for the six first round series that we know for sure are locked in two more series the one eight in each conference still to be decided because the eight seed play in games between cleveland and atlanta and the clippers and new orleans will go down Friday night to determine the eight seed in that one versus eight. Uh, I don't think either one of us uh, really wants to waste too much time on the teams that have already been eliminated. Uh, Spurs and the Hornets, coincidentally enough, both these same teams that were eliminated as 10 seeds in the 9-10 play-in last year. Hornets got drilled two years in a row. LaMelo, unfortunately, first couple taste of play-in action has gone very poorly. He's been bad. The Spurs once they no longer had a transcendent talent uh, in their midst, suddenly turn into Hornets West, basically. Anyway, do you have anything to say about the play-in games yet to be played? Uh, how interested are you in Cleveland, Atlanta, and New Orleans Clippers? It's just, Cleveland in general just makes me sad because they were having such a cool, fun season, just demolishing expectations, looking like this young team on the rise, which I think they still are. Yeah. And I think that's the, I mean, I don't know if you'd call it a silver lining, but like, I feel like you 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 feel a little bit better about it knowing that the future there is probably still pretty bright. Like that the three man nucleus of Garland, Allen, and Mobley, all those guys being I think twenty three or younger, right? Or maybe Allen's twenty four now, but like a good young three player nucleus that is going to, I think, drive a lot of success for that team moving forward. So that makes it feel okay, but it's still pretty dispiriting to just see the way that everything's crumbled for them mainly just because of injuries and a lack of competent guard play and it's disappointing that the guy they went out and got to try and solve that issue for them at the trade deadline just hasn't really panned out so far in Karis LeVert so I'll say I very much expect the Hawks to win that game um, you know, like the Cavs fought valiantly in that game against Brooklyn. Garland is a special, special player, but they just don't have the horses right now. And without Allen, I just don't think their defense can be good enough to offset an offense that that isn't getting enough quality guard play right now. So yeah, it, um, I thought I was reading that there is a possibility Allen could play. I'm maybe interesting. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know how much stock I'd put in that as like a likely thing. I think it's a possibility, but no, I'm with you. I think the Hawks, not dissimilar to last year, kind of catching fire at the right time. I don't think they have quite the same ceiling as last year, just because I think 
Uh, well, one, John Collins is still out, and and two, the defense this year just has been a lot more in line with what you'd expect of that roster as opposed to last year when the defense um, found a bit of magic and and helped propel them, you know, with Trey and the other guys. So I think the Hawks win the play-in, end up playing Miami, don't think they necessarily have the East Finals run in them, but they're still a dangerous team. You know, I, I don't know any top seed, especially in the East, which as we've talked about before, whether it's Miami or any of the other teams that would have got the one seed, it's like deeper and it's compact, but it's not necessarily top heavy. And like none of those top teams really blew us away in terms of thinking like, okay, this team, like no one's beating this team. And yeah, yeah, like I think the Heat are at least somewhat vulnerable. And and given that, I don't know any somewhat vulnerable team that wants to play a guy like Trey Young in a playoff setting. Like there's still some danger there. Yeah, I think the Heat switchability, I mean, it's maybe silly that we're talking about this as if it's a foregone conclusion. Right that this is the matchup that's going to happen, but I do expect this to be the matchup. And I think if it is Hawks heat, I can see it being six, maybe even seven games. And I, I will be curious to see like how much the heat switching can kind of flatten out the Hawks pick and roll game. And then also, I mean, I don't know what the status of John Collins is like, do they expect him back for this play in game for the first round? Like he, that's a good question. I feel like that could have something to say about how competitive that series would be, but I certainly don't think it's going to be a typical one versus eight cakewalk for Miami. Like, I think that's going to be a tough series for them. So, uh, yeah, I, and, I, and that speaks to, to to what we've been saying about the East, which is that it is deeper than it's been in a really, really long time and maybe ever. And also, uh, maybe it's just a little bit flatter at the yeah. top in terms of like the quality of the very best teams. And and what that leaves you with is like a one, eight matchup. And, you know, as I'm sure we'll talk about a two, seven matchup where it's actually quite close in terms of like the talent of the two teams. So, uh, yeah, I think 10, 10 games, 10 or nine games, I think separating first through 10th in the East, which in the case of Atlanta, they were ninth, but you know, might finish eighth after the play in, but either way you look at it, I don't think Miami's your typical one seed, and I definitely don't think Atlanta's your typical eight or whatever you want to call them, nine seed, uh, way better than that. The, the last thing I do want to mention uh, with Miami, because I know we're not going to really get to talk much about them in this episode since you know they, their series isn't ironclad yet, but um, we've both spoken about how, yeah, they're not your typical one seed. Maybe they are a bit more vulnerable. I know you kind of tongue-in-cheek reference to uh, them as frauds a couple weeks ago. And, and even I said I don't have the same faith in them I had a couple years ago when they made that bubble finals run. The one thing I thought was interesting, um, I do that post every year, like the statistical uh, profiles of modern champions. And I did it again this year. And, you know, to no surprise, the only team that actually like checked every box where you could say um, if if the history continues to repeat itself and like these are the benchmarks needed, to be an NBA champion. The only team that fits the bill this year is Phoenix. I don't think that'll surprise anyone given the way they ran away from the pack in like what was otherwise a season of parody. But the one thing that did surprise me is that Miami was one of the two teams other than Phoenix that checked at least five of the six boxes I used for that. And the only thing that held them back from like technically checking every box statistically was that their offense didn't measure up because um, I can't remember the, what the specifics are now. I don't have it in front of me, but basically the benchmarks of like teams that have won the championship uh, the last 18 years, or whatever it is on the offensive end, it's like 
top 11 offensive efficiency. Um, Got to be like top 15 in effective field goal percentage. And I can't remember what the other, anyway, Miami came up literally just shy in one of those categories. And then so technically don't qualify, but I was actually surprised at how close they came to being the only other team other than Phoenix that actually checks all the boxes of like, Hey, if you're going by like recent history and what is needed statistically during the regular season to say this team is a championship contender, Miami came that close to being the only other team. And I think that's interesting. And I also think it's interesting because of how much concern there was and still is about their offense, right? So it kind of ends up bearing out in the numbers where it's like, yeah, it, it is what you see. Like if their offense was just a bit better, they'd pretty much have all the pieces. Who was the second team in that like second tier? Was it Memphis? Golden State. Golden oh, State Golden actually. Game. Yeah. And funnily uh, enough, also on the offensive end that they actually didn't measure up, which I, again is interesting because with the Warriors, it's very much like, if Steph is healthy and they actually have a, a playoff run with Steph and with Draymond back now, obviously with Clay, with the player Jordan Poole has turned into, I, you know, their offense might not be what it was five years ago, but I still think that can more than be a championship offense if all those guys are in the lineup and clicking. And so I, I thought that was interesting as well, where it's like, you know, the Warriors, they had that crazy hot start. Everyone kind of not forgot about them, but you know, they tailed off and Draymond was injured and all that. It's like, they very much still have the indicators of a championship team if if they're healthy and that offense gets back to what it was. Yeah, worth pointing out, though, that it has been, you know, the last couple seasons now, like their defense has been elite. Yeah. And it's been their offense that has yep. sort of been their undoing. So that, that'll be interesting to see. And obviously, you know, Steph's health status looms very large. But uh, what do you think about Clippers Pelicans? I feel like that's almost a toss up to me. Yeah, I think that'll be a great game. I want to lean Clippers just because... I feel like despite the fact they were like the undermanned team all year, I find them somewhat more trustworthy than the Pelicans in some ways. They have home court. And, I, you know, I, I think Paul George is the best player in this matchup and in a one-off especially. Yeah, but is Paul George being guarded by Herb Jones the best player in this hey, matchup? Or is Shout he a pumpkin? Herb, jo- Herb Jones, man, is the real deal on the defensive end. He might have been the best player on the floor in that Pelican Spurs game. Like yeah. obviously McCollum at the offensive end was just lights out and the, and the Pelicans couldn't have won that game without his shot making, but I also don't think they could have won that game with the havoc that Herb Jones wrought at the defensive end of the floor. That was wild. So yeah, like the the option to throw him on PG is uh is pretty interesting and I think actually like the Pelicans have more offensive firepower, but I also think they're going to have a pretty tough time scoring on that Clippers defense. And then again, I guess that like, you know, the Clippers are also going to have a tough time scoring on the Pelicans defense. And I feel like, you know, the Pelicans shaky backcourt defense maybe doesn't feel like such a huge concern uh, against a team that starts Reggie Jackson at point guard, you know, no disrespect to Reggie Jackson, who's I think done what the Clippers have needed him to do in terms of just like keeping them afloat while their two superstars have been out. But it's also like not the kind of guy that you really worry about exposing like a weaker defensive backcourt. And also like if, if it is becoming a problem, as we've seen, like the Pelicans can kind of just like bench Devonte Graham and throw Jose Alvarado out there and like problem solved. Cause that guy is also incredible. It's and Alvarado game. also was huge. Uh, in, in that play-in game as well. I know you mentioned Herb Jones maybe being the best or most impactful player on the court. Jose Alvarado was right up there. Again, I think CJ 
CJ, in my opinion, was at the end of the day the best or you know most important player in that game. But uh, between Jones and Alvarado, both monumental. Uh, and Ingram was good early too. All right, do do you think either one of those teams? not has a chance to beat Phoenix because I think the Suns are going to run rough shot over either one. But do you think one of those teams has the potential to be a better matchup at least um, or a tougher matchup that can, I don't know, maybe steal a game or two? Or or you think just either one of those just cannon fodder? Cannon fodder. Yeah, I agree. I think either one of them probably takes a game. But I would I would pick the Suns to win in five or maybe even less against either of them. I think it would be a great accomplishment for either of them making the playoffs is the thing, right? Like the, the Clippers go the entire season without Kawhi Leonard, the majority of the season without Paul George. I think for them to make it in would be, you know, a statement of intent as they look toward a, a hopefully healthy season next year with Kawhi coming back and the pieces that they've added in Robert Covington, who is going to be a free agent, but I think they'll try to retain him. I think he's been really good there. And Norman Powell, who I think fits the healthy version of this team, like a glove. I think that would be a great uh, achievement for them. And then with the Pelicans, obviously, everything they've gone through this season, you know, not having Zion and, you know, dealing with injuries to Ingram and the start they got off to where I think they were, what, 3-16 and 16 out of the gate. For them to storm back and make the playoffs, I think, would be would be tremendous for them as well. And, um, you know, it's, it's interesting, actually. Like, you know, I'm not going to say they're in, like, the same situation because both these teams healthy next year. I think the Clippers are a cut above. But if... If they can get Zion healthy for next year, I think this Pelicans team could be really dangerous. Yep. And I I hope we get to see it, man. I really do. I know. I know. And I, I think CJ with Zion and Ingram um, could be great. And I know like one thing you wanted to see early and you liked them getting JV. Like you thought that there was some interesting potential there with those two behemoths in the lineup. I agree with you. And I think yeah, there is not a team in the league that is equipped to deal with that. I know. I know. That interior it, scoring punch. Like that you know is... What I mean? What I think is fascinating, I was uh, like ranting about this last season and it ended up still being an issue for New Orleans this year, but they get outscored at the three-point line like no other team in the league. Like the gap between their three-point negative differential and the next team is has been pretty sizable two years in a row and yet here they are knocking on the door of the playoffs. Anyway, the other thing I think is just kind of a cool story, um, you know, not necessarily anything to do with the, the specific matchups, but... I think it's a cool story that Chris Paul is awaiting the winner of New Orleans Clippers. Yeah. Um, all right. I think that's enough play in, uh, play in talk. Let's get to the real thing. Six series locked in. We're going to try to talk about all six of them in 10 minutes or less per series. Wolf on, where are we starting? We're not going to go in any kind of order by seeding. Right? We're just going to go with by order of, I guess, interest, personal interest. So Wolf on, which series are you most interested in? I think it's got to be Sixers Raptors. <laughs> yeah. You know, like yeah. both for, you know, the the pressure on Philly and the disaster potential there for them, the stylistic intricacies of that matchup. Uh, I I think that's the one, you know, and maybe that'll seem like a homer pick, but uh, I think that's the one that I am going to be watching with the most fascination. And I, I'm pretty sure that I would say that even if, uh, you know, in my heart of hearts, I wasn't a Raptors fan. So, uh, yeah, I think, I mean, we, we were, uh, we were on the, the venerable Trillbro dudes podcast yesterday talking all about this matchup. Uh, and we're going to be actually on another show later today talking about this matchup. So uh, there'll be no shortage of content. I mean, you wrote a whole feature about it. Like there'll be no shortage of content 
from the two of us breaking this matchup down. But for the purposes of this podcast and our audience, uh, what do you think is like the single most interesting battleground when stacking these two teams up? I mean, I think a lot, I think a lot of people would say, um, you know, the kind of like mad genius, mad scientist ways of Nick Nurse and this, and this crazy defense against Joel Embiid, because that's been the story the last few years and the way they defend him. But for me, um, and this will be in, in our series preview as well, when we put them up this weekend on the, on the app, for me, I think the most interesting thing is, is James Harden this series and, and how that matchup breaks down of James Harden against the Raptors. Cause I think you and I are both in agreement that if James Harden is a top two player in this series, with the assumption being that Joel Embiid is the best player in the series, the Raptors pretty much have no chance to win four of seven. If James Harden looks as whatever you want to call him, washed, old, disinterested, unhealthy, look, whatever, whatever you want to say is the reason he hasn't looked quite himself this year. If he's still that guy, on top of the fact that the Raptors are maybe the team best equipped to turn him into that guy, even if he was healthy. If he's not a top two player in the series, the Raptors definitely have a chance. And again, if you look at the way the Raptors are built defensively, the way James Harden likes to play and what he likes to do offensively, I think you can make the argument that he's not going to be a top two player in the series. Like it would take a Herculean effort for him to be because just this like revolving door of lengthy, switchable, terrorizing defenders the Raptors have and the way Nick Nurse deploys them, it's going to be hard for James Harden to create any semblance of an advantage. And as we know, like his offensive game is predicated on creating those advantages, whether that's with his first step, whether that's with his step, like whatever the case may be, his offense is predicated on creating those advantages either in the pick and roll and, and ending up in four and three situations or in one-on-one offense, obviously creating those advantages and ending up at the free throw line. But between him not really having the burst he used to have and the Raptors just having all these dudes, like even someone like Precious Achua, who, yeah, his primary is going to be handling Joel Embiid, but no, he's going to switch on James Harden. He did a pretty damn good job of it in their first matchup. I know you've mentioned you mentioned on uh, Trail Bros podcast that you think Achua might be the Raptors' best one-on-one defender. Like they they've got these kind of defensive unicorns all over the roster, and I I really struggle to see how James Harden is going to consistently create advantages in his matchups. And if he doesn't, and he can't, I don't think he's going to be a top two player in the series. And then that's where I see the Raptors really having a chance to push this thing to the limit and maybe win it. Yeah, did you, you know, if you were a Sixers fan, would you feel better or worse hearing Doc Rivers say, actually, James Harden is completely healthy. There's nothing wrong with his hamstring. I Essentially, feel, the subtext being, he's, he, he's just playing like trash right now. Don't yeah, worry. I, I'd feel sick if it's true, because <laughs> for real, like, I, because if he is completely healthy right now, and this is then at that point, then I believe, then he's washed. Like straight up, if he's completely healthy right now, and is just this the player that he's been, you know, for a, a large chunk of this year. And even if you, if you watch the last time the Sixers and Raptors matched up, and just how ineffective he was, like if that's him healthy, and he th- his team just drew the opponent that is best equipped to slow him, even when he's at his best. Like what? I'm not really liking those those facts if I'm a Sixers fan. Yeah, I mean, I think the big thing there is like especially given the fact that he hasn't shot the three well, like the step back hasn't been going in. Um, The pull-up jumper in general just hasn't really been there for him uh, the last little while. Like the Raptors are, they're going to play those 
Harden and Embiid pick and rolls two on two, whether that means a, a straight switch or just a drop. I think that his inability or, or the extent, I guess, of his ability to actually put pressure on the Raptors defense in those scenarios is a huge swing factor here because like if he's not drawing two to the ball or if the Raptors are comfortable switching it and they're taking away like the, the pocket pass, they're kind of like taking away a little bit of the North South element of those pick and rolls. And the Sixers aren't generating like significant advantages out of those situations, you know, because the Raptors have all these like-sized guys where, you know, going from having precious Achua guarding uh, Joel Embiid to having, you know, Precious Ben guarding Harden and like whoever is, is the primary on Harden. I think it'll be like Scotty Barnes. Maybe it'll be OG. It could be Siakam at points. Having any of those guys then switching on to Embiid. And obviously like there's always going to be a lot of help involved with whatever Embiid matchup they switch themselves into or have as the primary there. It's like suddenly that that pick and roll isn't a significant weapon for the Sixers. Uh, and obviously if, if Harden has a bit of his burst back and he can beat some of those guys off the bounce or if you know, he he's starting to knock down that step back and they're not as comfortable just letting him go one-on-one and start to have to shade more help his way. That completely changes the equation. But uh, with the way that he's been playing for the last few weeks, like if, if that's the guy that we see, then I agree. That's, that's pretty concerning for Philly and that opens the door for the Raptors. Um, worth pointing out though, and they have done a, a wonderful job to the extent that any team can when it comes to guarding Embiid. The Sixers have still won, you know, comfortably actually have won Embiid's minutes during the season series. They've lost those games. Like the the Raptors won three of four during the regular season because they've dominated Philly in the minutes that Embiid's been on the bench. And I don't know that I see that changing. Like, I don't know that Philly can win those minutes. Whether they lose those minutes, like to the point that it cost them the series is another matter. But they really have to like handily win the minutes when Embiid is on the floor because when he's on the bench, it's very much advantage Raptors. You know, this is something I've talked about a lot this season, right? The the way that the Raptors control the possession game and that's like, they're going to try to turn the Sixers over. They're going to crash the hell out of the offensive glass. They are the second best offensive rebounding team in the league. Sixers are one of the worst rebounding teams in the league despite having Joel Embiid. In the three games the Raptors won during the season series, which, by the way, the the only one they lost was when they were completely ravaged by COVID. But in the three games they won, they were on average plus 12 in terms of shooting possessions. And so that's how you, you get a situation where one team in Philly had a 59% true shooting percentage during the season series, and the Raptors were at 54%, and the Raptors still won three of the four games. So limiting turnovers, keeping the Raptors off the offensive glass, those are things that Philly needs to do in order to prevent Toronto from erasing the shot-making deficit and leveling the scales there. You think Matisse Thibel's absence in uh, in road games in the series is a bit overblown given that there are offensive advantages for Philly that come with not having him on the court and having maybe a better shooter? Or do you think that his absence in those games in Toronto on the defensive end is actually as big a factor as people are making it out to be? Because as I pointed out before, like he, he's, I, I guess their best option against Siakam, right? Because Embiid has had a lot of success against Siakam in the past, but you know, as I was mentioning on Trill Bros podcast, 
like I think that's a matchup where depending on the way you know Siakam's offense is being created, if he gets the ball in the post and he get he catches it in the post and you've got a beat on him, obviously fine and beat can swallow him up. But Siakam's more of a point forward type of player, and I don't think the Sixers want Embiid necessarily matching up with him in general and like being on the perimeter guarding Pascal Siakam. So I I would imagine Matisse Thybulle's their first choice to guard Siakam, and if he's not there in Toronto, like that's advantage Siakam, I would imagine. All right, well, first of all, I don't think Embiid guarding Siakam means that Embiid is going to be pulled out to, like, the three-point line. Like, maybe he's got to stick closer to him in the mid-range, but he's going to play him with a gap if that's the matchup. Like, he'll dare Pascal to hit pull-up jumpers. So I don't think it's necessarily like, yeah, you have to have Embiid out on the perimeter if Siakam's his primary. Like, he's still going to lay back, and that it, it, that would make it incumbent on Pascal to, like whether it's the pull-up threes or whether it's just like getting into those push shots or the mid-range jumpers, he's going to have to hit enough of those to keep Embiid honest. I, I don't think the Thibel thing is overblown. I mean, maybe to to a certain extent, because I, I do think, obviously, at the offensive end, that gives the Raptors just a, a natural place to double off of. And it, it balances out, I guess, the, the value that he's bringing at the defensive end. What I think is overblown is like, the idea of Thibault being like a Siakam primary defender, because I think what makes Thibault special defensively is his off-ball defense, not necessarily his on-ball defense, which is good, but not special in my mind. I think what's special about him is like what he can do as a nail defender, what he can do in help side, whether it's, you know, coming over uh, to make a rotation or a dig, whether it's just playing between two shooters on the weak side, like that's, what makes him a special defender. And that's where I feel like his absence is going to be missed because if the Sixers, you know, whether it's having Embiid guarding Siakam and that's taking away, not taking away, but that's putting their most important defender by far in a situation where he has to pay attention to the Raptors number one offensive option, who's providing the help around him. And if it, if it's a situation where, the Sixers are double teaming Siakam and the ball is getting spit out and the Sixers are in rotation. Who's plugging the gaps? You know what I mean? Like that's where I feel like they're really going to miss Bible. And I I do think that's a big deal. Like I don't think it is overblown. Uh, I just think maybe the overblown part is like him as like a Siakam stopper. Cause I don't think that was going to happen anyway. But if, if they don't want to, kind of like take that step and put Embiid on Siakam if they feel like they they need Embiid to just be a rim protector, then they're going to have a hard time in, in one-on-one coverage against Pascal. Like Tobias Harris can't do it. George Niang can't do it. Like nobody else on that team can really do it. Pascal has eaten when he's matched up against Tobias Harris this season and, and the numbers bear that out. Um, last thing, Sixers-wise, forget just stopping Pascal Siakam. Matisse Thibel's not on the court. Who in God's name is stopping the ball on the, like at the point of attack on this team? Matisse Thibel's probably, I guess Danny Green on his best days <clears throat> is still a competent defender, but not every night anymore. And other than like Joel Embiid, obviously still one of the, the most impactful defenders in the game when he's playing at full throttle. But other than that, like it's Thibel. You take Thibel out of the equation. Who is this team's? above average non-big defender i don't think they have one the raptors don't have these like downhill attackers that's not really how their offense works 
So I think what is actually going to happen is like the Raptors are just going to mismatch hunt. Like they'll go after Harden or they'll go after Maxi. They will try to exploit size advantages, whether it's in the post or on the offensive glass. They'll try to force double teams and swing the ball around that way and get some open threes. But it's not like, I don't think they have to worry about Fred Van Vliet, like tearing them apart at the point of attack and getting into the teeth of the defense. Because first of all, like until Fred proves that like his jump shot is going to be there, which it hasn't been for weeks. I think the Sixers are, are dropping against him and, and are living with that, you know, until he's actually burning them. Because why bring Embiid up to the level? Like, why put two on the ball if you don't have to? And then it's like, okay, if if you go over and, and then Fred is like getting into the lane and Embiid is dropping, what's Fred doing? You know, is right. he getting bottled up in the middle of the floor? Is he hitting a mid-range jumper? Like, I think the Sixers are going to play those pick and rolls two on two and it's not going to be a huge issue for them. And that's really like what it comes down to in terms of, yeah, like the Raptors have these certain advantages in terms of the matchup, if, if you look at like marginal stuff, you know, possession battle, transition, bench minutes, all that stuff. But the big thing is, is their half court offense going to be able to score enough, you know, to make that marginal stuff matter. So, all right. Well, that's what I'm looking at and thinking like, yeah, the Raptors have all these things that can make Philly uncomfortable, but I, I'm still not sure it's enough. All right. So what's your uh, series prediction then? Sixers well, I know se- Sixers yeah, and seven. Saying, yeah, we're on the same page there. We both predicted the same thing on Trill's podcast. Um, but the same thing I was saying on that pod, and I'll probably mention it again when we talk about this series for a third time later today on um, Will Lou's The Raptors Show, um, is that I do think there is like a mental hurdle the Sixers will have to clear in this if the Raptors push them in ways that we both think they can push them because the Sixers are a team that is that has some demons in the playoffs and demons when it comes to kind of getting over the hump in big games. And and even James Harden for as great and successful players he's been in his career has some of those demons too. And in Philly, especially in that environment, like if, you know, the Raptors were to go up in the series or if it gets to a game seven and you know, it, it's a very tense atmosphere in Philly and they are up in the game or there's like pressure on the Sixers that, that crowd, as we've seen in the past can turn very quickly. You know, it's not the type of crowd that, like, the team needs to get down 20 for them to start getting antsy or booing or whatever the case may be. So I do think there will be a, a mental hurdle that the Sixers need to clear. I guess we're both well, – I'm saying they're, they'll barely clear it, but uh, we are both picking Sixers, which is funny because so much of our commentary about the series and probably will continue to be until it starts is, is about how much trouble the Raptors can give them. But at the end of the day, we're both picking Philly. Um, what's your next most fascinating series? Uh, Warriors Nuggets. Nice. And obviously that gets significantly less fascinating if Steph Curry can't play or is just like significantly hobbled. But I, I'm really hoping that he is available, that he can play, that he's close to 100% because I think it is such an interesting stylistic matchup and, and a clash of styles in a lot of ways. And it's like, you know, you can really boil the tactical stuff down to okay, how are the Warriors defending Jokic and how are the Nuggets defending Steph? And that's, I mean, there there are, those aren't just like one-off questions, right? Like there are a lot of different things that go into defending Steph, both on and off the ball and similar with Jokic. But 
that's that's really what it's going to come down to, and I'm I'm really interested to see how that goes. Yeah, I mean, I guess the latest word on stuff is that he is expected back, or he, is he probable for game one or questionable? I think he's probably. I think the last thing I saw was Steve Kerr saying that it was going to go down to the wire in terms of his status for game one. So, so that's not good to go. I, I think the the Nuggets are a um, interesting enough matchup for them, and as you mentioned, stylistically a clash um, with them enough that. And Jokic is obviously good enough where like this series should go long. And so Steph even say missing a game or let alone two could very much swing the balance of power in this series. Cause you know, a series that could go six or seven games. If you're giving the nuggets one off the top in the event, Steph sits like that could change everything. They steal home court advantage, all that. Um, if, if Steph were like, say there were no concerns about Steph's health, which I know is a silly question because there are, but if say, you go into this series with the Nuggets being what they are this year, obviously no Murray, no Porter, and, and the Warriors going in now with Steph back, Draymond just came back, going in full health. How much of a test would you think the Nuggets could give them then? Uh, I would say six games. Yeah, that's what I would say too. Now, say Steph misses a game and is like not 100% for the whole series. You, would you switch to Nuggets win that series then, or would you just think like the Warriors barely hang on? Yeah, that's I, the hedge that I kind of landed on was Warriors in seven. All right. Um, but it yeah, it just like depends on the extent to which Steph is compromised and how many games, if any, he has to miss because th- there's a wide range of outcomes there. So I think, yeah, in the event, like he misses one game and is like 85% the rest of the time, I still think the Warriors have it, but narrowly. So yeah, I mean, in terms of guarding Jokic, I think... Kevon Looney is going to be the primary. Looney's done a, a pretty good job. Uh, and I want to be clear, like doing a pretty good job on Jokic still means like getting eaten alive a lot of the time, yeah. but we're grading on a curve here. Looney has been actually like one of the better Jokic defenders in the league this season, I think. And interesting enough, like they played four times during the regular season. Draymond didn't play in a single one of those games. So not a ton to draw on there. Uh, in terms of the defensive strategy, because obviously Draymond being there changes uh, how the Warriors' defense operates. But I think a couple things that I'm really interested to see, like what is Draymond doing when Looney has the assignment? You know, are they like trying to front the post with Looney and Draymond's looming on the backside? Uh, are they playing it a little more straight up, but Draymond is there as a helper? Like, he could be the guy who's doubling the ball or they're sending the double from a different direction and trusting Draymond to sort of like captain the rotations behind that double team. Him being there, like even if he's not directly guarding Jokic makes a huge difference in how they cover him. And then I'm really interested to see like when Looney goes off the floor because he's going to have to come off the floor, whether it's because of like foul issues or just to like open things up for the Warriors offense how much damage can Jokic do in that matchup to offset what the Warriors are going to do when they're small? Like what, what that looks like when the Warriors go small is like maybe the most fascinating element of this series to me. To your point about Looney, like the one thing I noticed with Looney Jokic matchups this season, I haven't checked the numbers in the matchup. Maybe you did uh, in your series preview, but is that he like, it like visibly looked like he was making Jokic work harder than he usually had to. And even to your point about like grading on a curve, he, he can still eat you alive. I feel like part of like defending Jokic well is at least making it look like he's sweating, you know, because so much of his game and so much of his excellence is like looking like he's coasting because he's a basketball genius in so many ways. But in matchups against Looney this year, it's been pretty evident that like 
he's had to fight harder for positioning. He's had to work just in general. He's made him work harder. And given the load on Jokic on both ends of the court this season, especially with the guys missing, like that adds up over the course of a playoff series. I think this is something we mentioned on, on the, you know, ball podcast when we were talking about the Raptors and defending Embiid. I think when, when we try to think about like how teams can like defend a dominant big man, we, there tends to be too much focus on like the individual matchup and not enough focus on the other pieces. And I think similar to how the Raptors are well-equipped to defend Joel Embiid, not because they have like a behemoth who can lock him down one-on-one, more so because they have a lot of really good and really aware help defenders who can dig down and double and recover all that stuff. I think that's true of the Warriors with Jokic too. You don't defend Jokic in single coverage. Like, that's just not how it works. It helps if you can do it in spots. And especially, like, you know, if he's catching the ball more than, like, 16 feet from the basket or something, then you can afford to not send help or not send, like, hard double teams at least. But if he's getting deep catches, like, there's going to be a ton of help involved. And I think the Warriors are well-equipped to execute the help and recover stuff that's required to not allow Jokic to completely dissect them with his passing because between Draymond, Gary Payton, the second Wiggins, Clay, Otto Porter, like they got rangy, smart defenders uh, who have the kind of help and recover instincts, I think to, to make those coverages work. And that's why I think like, you know, it's, it's not going to be about stopping Jokic. That's not going to happen. It's going to be about limiting what he can do, uh, maybe as a playmaker first and foremost. And that's where you get into like how much help is Jokic going to get from the Nuggets guards because that's where they're weakest. You know, you think about like, let's say Jokic is screening and pick and roll and the Warriors just w- want to play it like what's going to happen is is if the Nuggets run those pick and rolls, whoever is guarding Jokic and guarding the screen in those actions is going to stay stapled to him, right? Like they're not going to show any help at the ball, which is going to mean whoever is the ball handler in those actions has to has to like make them pay for that like they got to be able to go and score whether it's like as a pull-up jump shooter or as somebody who can like get downhill and get to the rim uh because the the only way that they're actually going to be able to like free Jokic up is by putting pressure on the defense whether it's you know as pull-up jump shooters maybe first and foremost but also like when when he gets doubled and spits the ball out like can they hit the catch and shoot threes um you know can they get the warriors out of a drop can they actually force a switch where the Warriors are now conceding a size mismatch underneath, you know, or, or are the Warriors going to get away with functionally saying, no, like you go ahead and try and beat us Bones Highland and Monty Morris and Austin Rivers. Like we're not going to let Jokic do it. Yeah. I mean, broken record, but what a shame that the Nuggets never got back to, to full health this year after Mm -hmm. looking like a legitimate championship type team after trading for Gordon last year. All right. One last thing. So Aaron Gordon, I think is also a really important figure in this series because I think, I think what Denver's probably going to do is have him guard Draymond so that they can switch the Steph Draymond stuff. He ends up on Steph, right? Yeah. Um, So that's going to be interesting because I think that like the Warriors, I guess their impulse is going to be to go at Jokic, Steph Looney pick and roll. Uh, so rather than bringing up Draymond and, and just getting Gordon switched onto him, they try to go at Jokic instead. But 
the Nuggets base is like when Jokic is in pick and roll, he, he they're they're hedging, like they're putting two on the ball. And if Looney's the guy screening, I feel like Denver's fine to live with that, man. Like they're not going to be super worried about Looney catching the ball in space, having a four on three advantage. So I actually think defensively, not that the Nuggets are going to be super comfortable. Like you obviously never are when, when you're trying to scheme to stop Steph Curry. But uh, I think there are ways that they can survive it. Yeah. And I think it's interesting too, if, uh, if they stick Gordon on Draymond, which we both expect, but Draymond's not involved in the Curry uh, screen action. I think that also allows Gordon to be somewhat of a rover. He can play mm-hmm. off Draymond a bit and and be that kind of roving help defender that he's really good at being. So, yeah, I agree with Gordon being an important piece of this series. All right, prediction? Warriors in seven. Yeah. I'm, all right, so we're, we're, we're sticking with the same predictions right now because I agree. <laughs> like, I would have gone Warriors in six. And if Steph was just out, I would pick the Nuggets. But given that I think, as you mentioned, we kind of have to hedge somewhere in the middle of what, like with Steph's status, that's what I would go. The Warriors still win it, but it ends up dicier than it otherwise would have been. All right, I'll start us off this time. I think we're three series in and haven't mentioned this one. If we're going by fascinating, we got to talk Celtics Nets, right? Like Mm -hmm. on top of like, even if someone was strictly interested from the narrative perspective and not basketball, obviously you've got the sideshow that is Kyrie playing the Celtics and, you know, being back in a series where Boston has home court advantage too, which just makes it all the more uh, juicy. So there's that, but there's also just like, forget that part of it, this um, matchup of, you know, a Nets team where they were what the second, I guess, best in terms of odds on championship favorites. I think after the Lakers coming into the year, Ceiling-wise, I think everyone would have said they they had the best chance to win it if every team were to hit their ceiling. But they have the disappointing season, and Kyrie doesn't start playing until January. They trade Harden. Simmons hasn't played yet. Um, but they're still here, and I don't think anyone wants to play them against this team like Boston, who started really shaky. I don't think anyone knew quite what to expect from them um, in the first year under Coach Udoka with Stevens in, uh, in the front office now. And they end up just becoming this like absolute well-oiled machine as the season rolls on. They've got the best defense in the league. After New Year's Day, they had the number two offense. They finished with the second best point differential in the league. Like there are a lot of indicators of a true contender here. And yet this is a first round matchup because of the season the Nets had. So I, I think it's really fascinating. And for me, the big question is, well, you know, obviously too, like Robert Williams status is a big part of this too, because he's going to miss we think he's going to miss the entirety of the first round. And and that's obviously big for them. Um, But for me, the big question is, can the Nets defend well enough to give their talent a chance? Because if you look at this from a talent perspective, as good as Jason Tatum is, as good as Jalen Brown is, you put Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant on the floor together. And you think talent wise, that team should be able to compete with everyone. But if you're bleeding points and cannot get a goddamn stop, if your life depended on it, you're not beating anyone. And that is the story of the Nets. In terms of teams that made the playoffs and or play in, so 20 of them, Brooklyn's defense ranked 18th, better than only Chicago and Atlanta. And that was with a defensive rating of 112.3. In the 1,092 minutes Kyrie was on the court this season, the defense gets even worse, not surprisingly, goes uh, down to 113.8. Now, obviously, they were able to overcome that future defense with Irving on the floor because they also scored at a historic rate on the other end. Their offensive rating when Kyrie was on the court was 118.9 points per one of possessions with 
be the most efficient offense ever. That's not sustainable against a team like Boston, I don't think. Obviously, no one's completely stopping Kyrie and KD, but the Celtics are pretty damn well equipped to do it. As I mentioned, they have the best defense in the league. Marcus Smart, even without Robert Williams, is still a defensive player of the year candidate and absolute terror. Jason Tatum physically is one of the guys that can at least make KD work and trouble him. Um, the defense works well on a string. So I, I don't think it's as simple as saying, well, you know, Kyrie's in the lineup now and the Celtics are, uh, the, sorry, the Nets are just going to score their way to victory. Like they're going to have to defend on some level and, and, yeah, like that that's the question for me is can they defend not even well, but just like competently enough to let the offensive talent take over? Like Kyrie played one game against the Celtics this year, okay? And the Nets lost that game. And a big part of that is exactly what I'm talking about. Durant and Kyrie shared the court for 28 minutes in a loss to the Celtics. In those 28 minutes, <laughs> Brooklyn's offensive rating was actually 122.6. Unfortunately, the Celtics' offensive rating in those 28 minutes Durant and Irving were on the court together was 132.2. So, I don't know. I mean, there's talk Simmons could be back by the middle of this series, like Game 4. I don't know how much pie-in-the-sky stuff that is. I don't know if you can expect him to just walk in after a year off and be the defensive terror he was at his best. Like, I don't know, do minutes with Bruce Brown and Nick Claxton on the floor just up the floor enough defensively to, to give these guys a, a good enough baseline, but... Any way I break down the series, that's what it keeps coming down to for me is can the Nets defend at even a respectable enough level that their offensive talent just has the opportunity to carry them home? I mean, I think you hit on like a crucial difference between these two teams where the Nets sort of have to finagle it to figure out, okay, how much offense defense balance do we need? Like, how are we constructing our best defensive lineups as situation dictates and like when are we going all in on offense as the situation dictates and the the Celtics don't have to do that because their best offensive lineups are also basically their best defensive lineups and look I think yeah the Nets are going to score in this series because they in terms of just like isolation scoring like there's only so much you can do I think it's interesting, you know, you mentioning Rob Williams and obviously there was like Bruce Brown coming out and saying, well, Rob Williams not being there is huge. Now we can attack Horford and Tice in the paint. But KD didn't like that. Did you, by the way, see Kevin Durant? I did. I did. Yeah. And like caffeine confidence, what do you say? Yeah. Caffeine confidence is a great, a great turn of phrase. I don't think I've ever heard that before, but I like it a lot. First of all, this is the Nets, man. Like they're not really a rim pressuring type of team. So uh, like, I just don't see it as, and by the way, like as Katie pointed out afterwards, Al Horford can still protect the rim. Like he, he's done a fine job of that this season, but it's not really in the Nets MO to just like go hard to the basket. Like they're very much a jump shooting team. And look, Bruce Brown as a role man completely carved the Cavs up in that play in game. But I just like like a lot of that stuff is going to fall by the wayside against Boston because the Celtics are, are just going to switch all those pick and rolls. And the same goes for Nick Claxton, right? Like I'm, I'm very curious to see kind of what uh, type of impact he can make if he isn't getting a steady diet of rim runs and lobs. Like if the Celtics are able to flatten that stuff out uh, and take the dive away by switching, can Claxton still be, you know, a net positive on offense? It's, and and by the way, like the Celtics don't let anyone get to the rim anyway. Like they're so stout at the point of attack 
and they switch so much and, and flatten things out. Like even if it were true that they suddenly had zero rim protection, I feel like the perimeter defense still acts as like a force field that protects the interior. So I just think that caffeine confidence was a little misplaced. Uh, and not that like Rob Williams not being there doesn't change things, but I just don't think it necessarily swings things in Brooklyn's favor. And I'll say like all that stuff could still be profitable for Brooklyn because if the if the Celtics are switching, KD can shoot over smaller defenders. Uh, you know, like I'm assuming Marcus Smart and Derek White are going to switch on to him plenty and they're going to try and get underneath him and mess up his dribble. But like he's still going to get his points that way, just like shooting over those guys, you know, taking them into the mid post and getting to that turnaround and shooting with the clear field of vision. And if the Celtics are switching their bigs onto Kyrie, like Kyrie can eat in those situations also. Uh, it's not like it's not going to be fun for Boston to try and guard this team. But to your point, it's like, okay, they're throwing out lineups with with Bruce Brown and Nick Claxton both out there because that's what they need in order to defend the Celtics. That's compromising their offense. And I just think the more I think about it, I'm like, I just think it's going to be easier for Boston to defend Brooklyn than vice versa. Like, yeah. And and Simmons being there and and playing like Simmons, like even if he's just the Simmons we saw last time he played, where he's not much of a factor offensively, but he can still be a defensive terror. I mean, that has swing potential in the series for sure. But until I actually see that, I just don't, I don't know what you can realistically expect from a guy who hasn't played in basically a year and was like hiding in a shell the last time we saw him play in a big playoff game. So I'm leaning Celtics in six. That's kind of my, that's where I'm at. Man, this is one of those ones where it's like all of the knowledge in my head or all of the, um, the observations I can make, the numbers I can look into, the matchup stuff I can think of. I like, (laughs) I should come to the conclusion the Celtics are winning this series. Mm -hmm. And yet, I don't know, man. Like maybe it's the, the belief in like what Kyrie will, command himself to do against the Celtics maybe it's faith in KD and like finding it tough to envision a team with him and Kyrie both on the court for you know every game together losing in the first round but like I think the Celtics are the better team and I think the Nets are going to win this series wow okay (laughs) I mean just saying Kevin Durant's name like that's reason enough to to pick the Nets I'm not yeah I'm not disputing that. Uh, no, I'll throw go... this back. To, I'll throw this back to you, though. Okay, so so you, you pick the Nets to win the series. In your yeah. mind, is Ben Simmons factoring into that victory? You know what? I think he is. Wow. I okay. think here's why. I don't like. I think the report this morning was yeah, he could be ready for game three or four. I can't, but I found it interesting that now they were like specifying. It wasn't like okay, he could be like that. The fact that they're specifying a potential target return game to me makes me think he is actually going to play in this series as opposed to leaving it a little more up in the air it was like okay well he'll be reevaluated in a week and we'll go from there the fact that there seems to be a target on it to me makes me think that he is actually going to get action in this series and how many how many minutes a game is he going to play that's a great question i mean like 18 maybe i'd say i'd say 20 to 25 if i had to guess and i don't know if he, if he gives him three games in three or four games in this series at 20 to 25 minutes and and raises that defensive ceiling for them yeah i'm I'm leaning i'm leaning nets okay um fully admitting that it is more so about the 
I guess, the power of Durant and, and to a lesser extent Kyrie than it is me thinking the Nets are the better basketball team because I don't. <laughs> yeah. Well, look, I mean, I said Celtics in six, which I feel like at that point you're at least acknowledging that it's possible that it could swing right. the other way. Uh, it's, it's not like I feel like the Celtics are going to dominate this series by any means. I, it wouldn't shock me if the Nets won, but I think on the whole, uh, the Celtics are a better basketball team. They are. And, and I know that's not always how it works in the playoffs, right? Like the team with the best player can often trump, uh, you know, the team that is maybe a little bit more well-rounded. I think it's going to be a fun series for sure. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out the Scores Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out the Score's YouTube page for an informative, yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show. All right, Wolfon, Memphis, Minnesota. An absolute plethora of young talent, exciting talent. Just the thought that one of these two teams will be in the second round of the playoffs, I think, is good and cool for the NBA. The Grizzlies haven't been there in seven years and the Timberwolves haven't been there in 18 years. All that out of the way for as much as it seems like this kind of like exciting matchup between two fun young teams. This is a mismatch in a lot of ways. The Memphis Grizzlies are a lot better than the Minnesota Timberwolves. And I can't see this series going more than five games. I think the, the gap between these two teams is drastic this is why i didn't have it higher on my kind of you know i I was like ranking them based on how interested i am in them and i'm interested in the series from like uh, a fan's perspective and an aesthetic perspective obviously you mentioned just like a ton of exciting young talent i mean john morant anthony edwards like how how could you not want to watch this series like i think i'll probably still watch every game and i think it's going to be fun to watch and I love both of these teams, but I just don't think it's going to be very competitive. Uh, I'm hundred percent with you. I'm picking Grizzlies in five. The biggest thing for me is I'm, I'm thinking like, what is this series going to be like for Carl Anthony towns? And we saw Hopefully better than the play in game was. Well, is it going to be though? Like, I mean, it can't get much worse. And actually towns did have a lot of success in the regular season series against Memphis, but it's not going to get any easier for him against this Grizzlies front line. Because, first of all, they're huge, they're tough, they're nasty, like, and, and they have a lot of options for how they want to defend him. Like, what the Clippers did is what a lot of teams around the league are now doing when they play the Wolves, right? Which is their center guards Jared Vanderbilt, and their power forward guards Towns. And if Towns can make that matchup hurt for the opposing team, if he can punish them for sticking a smaller player on him, then the Wolves can break that coverage. But if he can't, and he wasn't able to in that Clippers game, I mean, the Wolves still won, but they got pummeled in Towns' minutes on the floor, then it becomes a big problem. And they need Vanderbilt for their defense and for their rebounding, but he doesn't provide a ton of value on offense, you know, aside from generating second, you know, second shots with his offensive rebounding. But like, the the benefits of opposing teams being able to stick their centers on him is like those guys can just sort of play free safety and muck stuff up around the rim. And 
the Grizzlies kind of get the best of both worlds, right? Because if they're sticking their power forward on Carl Anthony Towns, it's not a smaller guy. It's freaking Jaron Jackson Jr. Yeah, who is like... Pound, pound the Rock Defensive Player of the Year, Jaron Jackson. That's right. Uh, unanimous Pound the Rock Defensive yes. Player of the Year, Jaron Jackson. So, I mean, there there's like one of the very few guys in the league who has the length to bother Towns' shot. You know, the strength to keep him out of deep post position and the quickness to cut off his drives. And so it's like they can have that matchup and not even really worry about sending a ton of help Towns' way and still have Steven Adams sort of like roaming in rebounding in rebounding position, protecting the rim, ostensibly guarding Vanderbilt, but really just like there to get in people's way. And I think that just becomes really tough for the Wolves to overcome. Um, and then this is also like, an even more extreme version of what we were talking about uh, in Raptors Sixers with one team being a hellacious offensive rebounding team and the other being really poor on the defensive glass. Uh, The Grizzlies were number one this season in offensive rebound rate and the Wolves were 27th in defensive rebound rate. So I'm looking at Towns at the center of all of this and thinking, I think it's going to be a real challenge for him offensively. And then at the defensive end, he's going to be tasked with like trying to keep Steven Adams and Jaron Jackson Jr. off of the offensive glass. I just think it's not going to be a fun series for him at all. Towns has to be smarter than he was in the playing game. Like I know plenty of people that'll go on about the like Towns' soft thing. Unsurprisingly, Shaq and Barkley, that's all they wanted to talk about on the TNT show that night. You know, like he's catching the ball too far from the rim. He's letting guys push him away he's too soft he is he is i know catching the i know ball too far away from the rim i know but what i'm saying is i don't even like that's been talked about so much that i don't even want to talk about that or like debate whether he's soft or any of that i think he just straight up also has to be smarter and in that game he allowed himself to be like way too out of sorts on on both ends of the court and especially with the fouls like look that was a poorly officiated game it took almost three hours to finish because of all the whistles but in the case of Carl Anthony Towns' fouls, I don't think it was poorly efficient. I think he was doing some dumb stuff. Like, Chris Finch, rightfully so, left him out there with two fouls in the first quarter, three fouls in the second quarter. Because as we both subscribe to the theory of, if you're a coach, don't foul a guy out before he's fouled out. If he ends up fouling out, guess what? He's going to be on the bench. If you take him out, he's on the bench anyway. So I completely understood Finch leaving him in the game. I didn't understand Carl Anthony Towns making some really dumb decisions and gambles whether it be for loose balls or on the defensive end that we're never going to end in Minnesota coming up on the right side of the play or the right side of the possession and was only putting himself at risk to take another foul. And then he would get the foul in a game where the whistle was blowing every 15 seconds. And then he would look just like absolutely astonished. Like, I can't believe you called me for that. It's like, dude, read the room, read the situation. They need him to be way smarter than that. If they've got even a puncher's chance to make this thing competitive, because for as great as D'Angelo Russell was, as great as Anthony Edwards was, as you know, emotionally uplifting as Patrick Beverly was, this Grizzlies team is not that Clippers team, okay? And they will run roughshod over you, and they'll laugh at you while doing it if you don't come prepared. And it, we can talk as much as we want the basketball side for sure, and you know whether he needs to be tougher and not allow himself to be pushed away from the rim. But he's straight up going to be smarter, and the Timberwolves need him to be sharper between the ears too. Yeah, and then, I mean, just a lot of interesting individual matchups, I think, in this series. Like, probably Dylan Brooks is going to guard Anthony Edwards, which I feel like is going to be all kinds of fun. And I would assume, you know, Beverly guarding Ja, uh, which has the potential to get pretty chippy. 
I'm interested to see also what the Wolves do with D'Lo on defense because they like to stash him on a non-threatening player and have him be their kind of rover and just overloading the strong side and quarterbacking their rotations and things like that and, you know, being like their primary communicator. And I just don't know how they manage that against Memphis. Like, where do they put him that's like a a roving spot for him? I don't think they, like, they want Beverly, I'm assuming, to be the primary on jaw. They don't want that to be Russell. But then, okay, who are they putting Russell on? Desmond Bain? You can't rove yikes. off with Desmond Bain. No, yikes. They're just like way more matchup advantages that Memphis yeah. has here. And so We already said, you know, we both think Grizzlies in five or I guess less in this series. But the, the last note I wanted to mention just to kind of drive home the point of how awesome the Grizzlies were this season. Uh, ESPN Stats and Info tweeted this one out. But average age for the Grizzlies, 24.4 years old. Since uh, minutes became an official stat in 1951-52, the Grizzlies are the youngest team to ever finish with a top two record. Amazing team right now and obviously an incredibly bright future. Unless you have anything else to add in what we think will be a Grizzlies shit kicking. Uh, no, I'm now I'm thinking, I guess they can put Russell on Dylan Brooks. I'm still thinking about that. Like that, that could be a guy that he could yeah. ostensibly guard and help off of. But uh, I still don't think that's enough to... No. turn the tide in Minnesota. And I mean, that, that that's still risky in its own. I know Brooks's shooting can be um, streaky, yeah. but if it does run hot, like that can burn you. Yeah, I, I would honestly even like worry less about the shooting than just if that's the individual matchup. Not that they want to run their offense through Dylan Brooks, but like there's well, a Dylan significant... Brooks wants them to run their offense through Of course Dylan he Brooks. does. But like there's a, there's a significant strength advantage there where I feel like as a driver... Like he could still put a hurting on Russell in that one-on-one matchup. But yeah, one one last interesting tidbit about Memphis is they finished this season third in offensive efficiency. Cleaning the glass tracks half-court offense, but it excludes offensive rebounding. So it's basically first shot half-court right. offense. Where do you think the Grizzlies rank in first shot half-court offense? Considering they finished, they finished third overall. First shot half-court offense. Um this Grizzlies team. Well, I, so I do know they do sustain themselves a lot on, on those second chance points. So I, I and on like transition number yes, one, v- number one, transition very Raptors like, very yes. Raptors like, so I'm going to say in first shot half court offense, they might be like 15th to 20th, 22nd. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, like uh, that, that, that to, to be 22nd in first shot half court offense and third in overall yeah. offensive efficiency, it really, shows you just like how well they do all what of they those do. other things yeah. yeah um i will say though that i i, I think they, they cruise past minnesota but i do think having an af, a half court offense that is that um i i guess not dependable is a concern for them moving forward beyond the first round when you're talking about whether they can compete can actually contend for a title right now at this point in their development i don't think they're there yet and i think that's a big part of why yep um, all right, where are we going next? The only two series left are Dallas, Utah, and Milwaukee, Chicago. Uh, yeah, Dallas, Utah is much more interesting <laughs> uh, to yeah. me out of these two. Um, it's, it all comes down to Lucas Kath, man. Yeah, I think the the latest news is that he might miss the first two games of the series. <sighs> yeah, they're, so, they're cooked. Yeah, what, like how do you even talk about this matchup without knowing what his status is going to be? Like almost even more so than the Warriors without Steph. Yep. It's like you cannot separate the Mavs from Luka. Like they, the Warriors can still like run the stuff they run for Steph for like Jordan Poole. 
you know, and obviously it's not the same, but uh, like the Mavs without Luca is like, you know, the, the solar system without the sun, like what, right. And which is a big reason probably why for the third consecutive season, he's going into the playoffs, like not 100%. I mean, I think this is the first year where he's fully going in with an injury, but even the last two years when he's, kind of been the sole reason the Mavs have pushed the Clippers by the end of that series. He's been like banged up, limping, whatever, because of the fact that he is very much the sun in the Mavericks solar system. Like they are nothing without him. I've been ragging all year about how, whether you want to call it the roster construction, just like the supporting cast around him, how poorly it has been compiled. And look, getting Spencer Dinwiddie has been good for them, but that's helped. It's made them better. They've been better in crunch time because of him. It's another guy who could, you know, competently, handle the ball and create some things for himself and for others. But at the end of the day, it still all boils down to Luca. As great as Luca's been this year, as much as he's played his way into shape and and very much after the Jokic, Giannis, Embiid top three, I think Doncic has been as good as anyone after that, especially in the second half of the year. For as good as he's been, for as amazing as the or as amazingly surprising as the Mavs defense has been this year uh under Jason Kidd. And for the Mavs finishing top four in the West. You could look at all those things and and see this team on the rise and then look across the court and see the way things are going in Utah. And I think maybe a lot of people would think, okay, there's there's this Mavs team on the rise and then there's this Jazz team ready to splinter. And so the Mavs should have this clear-cut advantage. But even with Luka at 100%, I don't think it's necessarily that cut and dry. Like I think the Jazz are still a much better basketball team than a lot of people are giving them credit for. I think you and I were both super, super high on them coming into the year. Um, we we both spoke a lot last week when we were talking about the Defensive Player of the Year stuff about how we we both think Rudy Gobert has basically become underrated uh, somehow in the defensive end, and, and we both had him as a runner-up in our Defensive Player of the Year fake ballots. But look, Utah's still a really good team. They're the most efficient offensive team in the league. Um, say what you will about Donovan Mitchell not passing Rudy Gobert the ball. And look, I, I do think that is somewhat of an, like, I think there are times they can throw the ball with a massive advantage down there, but regardless, they're the number one offense in the league with or without that. There is still a defensive ceiling there because Rudy Gobert friggin' plays for them. And I think they're good enough in general to beat the Mavs, even with Luca. Would I have picked them? I don't know. I think it probably would have gone the distance, but I might've even leaned Utah with uh, Luca, but it would have been tight. If you're telling me Luca's playing every game, but he's not at his best, I'm definitely picking Utah. And if you're telling me Luca's actually going to miss potentially multiple games, forget about even being at his not his best for seven games, if he's going to straight up miss games in this series, I'm picking Utah like in a no-brainer. I think this is quickly becoming a series that the Jazz should absolutely win. This has been the best Mavs team of the three that have made the playoffs with Luka Doncic as their best player, but I now think this might be the least competitive they are end up being in those three series because of the way this thing's just kind of lining up. Yeah, I'm, I'm so glad you said that because I think people just love to clown on the Jazz, and the Jazz do make it easy sometimes, yeah. and obviously they're ju- just like tragic comedy of a a crunch time offense led to them blowing several massive leads down the stretch of the season and just really limping to the finish line. And I think in the midst of all that and all the talk about it's time to blow it up, this thing has played out, Rudy and Donovan Mitchell can't coexist, yada, 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 they're frauds, all the stuff that people say about Utah this team has become underrated. Like this is still a really good basketball team that had the best offense in the league, the third best net rating in the league. And 
I just, I'm not saying that like the crunch time stuff doesn't matter or that it's not real, but I think it's like historically that stuff tends to be more flukish than an actual indicator of like something being wrong or broken with the team. And yeah, like switching defenses can still give them problems, but um, you know, as for like the thing with, with Mitchell and the few passes, I guess, that he throws to go bear per game to me, that all, all that says to me is I think that Rudy Gobert deserves more credit for continuing to roll hard to the rim time after yep. time after time, even knowing that a lot of those times he's not going to get the ball because it still puts pressure on the defense. It still draws in help. It opens up skip passes. It opens up floaters because the big man is always dropping with him. And yeah, Donovan Mitchell is not a particularly good playmaker for a lead ball handler, but I do think he's quite good at taking advantage of Gobert's role gravity. Like that offense is obviously very healthy. They finished number one in the league. So I think a lot of this stuff's overblown. And so like, let's, let's talk about this as if Luca's going to play the whole series. Right. And you saying like, even if that were the case, you might pick the jazz. I feel the same. And I think a big part of it is I don't think that Dallas's offense can really make Gobert uncomfortable and there are other pressure points they can hit where like Luca can go mismatch hunting against any number of, of Utah's perimeter defenders. Like that is definitely a concern. So like, even if the jazz can just like play their pick and rolls two on two, th- there are still going to be ways for Luca to collapse that defense by like creating mismatches by, you know, he'll go after Mitchell. He'll go after Conley. He'll go after Jordan Clarkson. And the, the jazz could very quickly find themselves in an emergency situation but they don't have the roster to really stretch the jazz out. Like I think their best five out lineups are basically Kleba at center. And I just don't like, I like Kleba a lot, especially defensively, but as like a, a small ball five, I, I still don't think he's like that good a shooter that he is like, I don't think he's garnering enough respect to like fully stretch the jazz out. I just don't think, the the Mavs finished 19th in three-point percentage this year. You know, like there's not going to be the kind of shooting that we saw right. in those Clippers small ball lineups that shredded the Jazz last year. Yeah. And apart from Although the shooting... It would, be, it would be hilarious if after this season where like every Mav just seemingly shot well below their standards, they get all clicks for them, which look, it very well could, you know, in a small Of course, it's the playoffs. Stuff. Like, yeah, right. the, yeah, and that's the thing. And if that did happen, there would be this huge referendum on Utah and how like their shit doesn't work in the playoffs. And... Because that's just like how the discourse goes. And, and and they would just ignore the fact that like, yeah, this one team just got really hot from three and that can happen. Um, I mean, if if like Luca misses two games and the Jazz still lose, like 100% blow it up, like raise the whole team to the ground. I, I don't know what to say at that point. But I think, you know, maybe even more than the shooting, I, I feel like Dinwiddie addresses some of this. But I, I also don't think that Dallas has like the the guys who extend advantages where like Maxi Kleba attacking a closeout and slowly moseying his way into the paint is not a particularly threatening situation for a defense. And Reggie Bullock putting the ball on the floor and attacking a closeout is not a particularly threatening situation for the defense. So I just think that Gobert's impact is still really going to be felt defensively. And we've seen a points this season, like, I, primarily he's going to be playing shallow drop against Luca and trying to like stay in contact with him and prevent him from getting clean looks while also taking away the lob 
he's going to be able to do that as well as anybody in the league can do that. We've we've seen Gobert have some success just like outright switching onto Doncic in the past. And I think that could work for Utah because Dallas doesn't really have a way to punish the back end of those switches. And so if like if Gobert can just hold up on the front end, which we, we've seen him do in the past, then yeah, I think they survived this series defensively and they let their offense carry them. So because of all the different like, you know, the buffet of options in terms of mismatch hunting that Luca will have. I think if he was 100% healthy, I would still probably lean Mavs, probably in seven games. But um, if he plays the whole series and is, you know, like even slightly compromised physically, I actually think the Jazz take this. So my, my pick right now is Jazz in six. Same here. Have we disagreed? I guess the only thing we've disagreed on so far is Celtics Nets. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, last series, and I don't think there'll be any disagreement here. Can the Bulls win a damn game against the Bucks? No. I'm gonna say no. Yeah, yeah I'm no, gonna say I'm... maybe maybe they get a fluky shooting game in one of the two games at home, and it ends up being a gentleman's sweep, a five gamer. But I'm saying buck sweep. Uh, just some numbers to throw out here. Bulls went two and twenty-one against the eight teams that finished with fifty wins. It ended up being the top four in each conference. They went zero and four against Milwaukee. They lost fifteen of their final twenty-two games and there are some things i guess we could watch in this series you know it is demar Derozan's game more playoff proof uh than it was in the past i still think it is and i don't necessarily think the bulls getting swept in this is going to be because demar's game doesn't translate to the playoffs uh or anything like that um the bucks rounding into championship form on the defensive end again now that brooke lopez is back and brooke lopez has pretty much gotten back and been himself right away especially defensively he's been awesome again so i think regardless of whether the Bulls can trouble them, I think that'll be something to watch as well as if the Bucks defense can continue to kind of ramp up in this series. Um, and then the thing that I'm going to be watching, not because, I, again, not that I think it'll, it'll be the difference in whether the Bulls can compete or not, but maybe it's the difference in whether they can win a game or not, is the Bulls' three-point differential has been something all season where if you look at all 20 teams that either made the playoffs or play in, the Bulls ranked 19th um, ahead of only the Pelicans, who I mentioned earlier, when it came to three-point differential. They allowed 1.1 more made three-pointers against than they uh, sank at the other end. And the issue only got worse after Chicago lost Lonzo Ball in mid-January. Over the final three months of the season, that negative differential doubled to 2.2. And I know like those numbers don't sound like a lot, 1.1, 2.2, but 2.2, that's 6.6 points per game that you are losing at the three-point like you're going into games almost you know six seven points down because of the differential at the three-point line alone that's debilitating in the modern game especially against a superior team like the Bucks, where in and of itself they've got just inherent advantages over you and you need things to break right to even have a chance against them and one of the things you know when there is an upset brewing that usually you would need to go right is you need to be unsustainably hot shoot like from a shooting perspective or in general you just you need the shooting variance to go your way right you need to be on the opposite end of that spectrum where you're winning the three-point line battle more often than not the bulls are not the team that's going to do that and in fact it's quite the opposite and they're playing a bucks team that on top of being that much better than them is also a top five team when it comes to three-pointers made so i just think like any way you slice this (laughs) the bulls are going to get eaten alive here yeah i think more than the three-point stuff the thing that is going to worry me is their their rim defense. Like they allow the highest opponent frequency at the rim in the entire league and they're going up against Giannis Antetokounmpo yeah. without a particularly good primary option to even throw at him and you know with Nikola Vucevic being their last line of defense. 
It's just like it goes deeper than that, obviously. But like that right there just kind of sums everything up. Like they don't have a good answer for Giannis. They can't stop teams from getting to the rim. And the the guy they have there as as their would-be anchor is just not an especially good rim protector. So that's a huge concern. I mean, you, you talk about the offensive stuff and like the, the Bulls have a very low three-point attempt rate. I think maybe dead last in the league in terms of three-point attempt rate. They make up for it with mid-range shooting uh, and, you know, by getting to the rim themselves and also getting to the free throw line. I just think a lot of that stuff's going to dry up against the Bucks. Like the Bucks historically do a, a really, really good job of defending without fouling. Uh, I can't, they finished either first or second this year in like limiting opponent free throw attempts. And they actually like, in terms of like the rim frequency allowed, haven't been quite up to the level this season that they've been at in the past. But still, I mean, like Brooke missed basically the entire season and he's back now. You got him and Giannis back there. Like, I don't think the Bulls are going to have an easy time getting to the rim. The mid-range, I guess, will still be there for them. But it's like you, you throw Drew Holiday on DeMar DeRozan, and suddenly I think it's going to be a lot more difficult for him to get the airspace that he needs to get those shots off. There are a couple big counters that they could theoretically have to that defense. One of them is like Levine, you know, coming off of pin downs and knocking down movement threes. But I don't know how healthy Levine is, man. Like he has not yeah. looked the same since he came back from that knee injury. And then the other one is Vucevic as like a pick and pop threat. But Vuce has just been, he's been one of the most disappointing players in the league this season to my mind. Yeah. And I just, I, I don't think that they can rely on him to bust that Bucks coverage. So yeah, I got Bucks in four, man. I, I think it's an awful matchup for the Bulls. And I was saying that even when they were rolling, I was like, actually, I think, you know, they, they could do some damage in the playoffs, but if they get the Bucks, they're screwed. And now with them in the state they're in, you know, with no Lonzo, with Levine maybe hobbling, I, I don't think they would have won a, a playoff series against any, like, current East playoff team in the state that they're in. But they could have been somewhat competitive, I guess, in some matchups, just not this one. So Bucks and four. So now that we got all that out of the way, before we get to our fan shout out and get out of here for the weekend... Give me a finals prediction. Really? Why? <laughs> like who's playing in the finals or who's winning? Both. Uh, okay, let's... Uh, I'll Suns over Bucks. God damn it. Yeah, we, we agreed on literally everything in this podcast except Man. for Celtics-Nets. I was going to say the same thing. I think it ends up a rematch of last year's finals and the Suns come out on top this time. For the love of God... Stay healthy and in one piece, Chris Paul, yeah. for a playoff run. This is your time, man. This is your moment. The ring is attainable. All right. Fan shout out this week goes to Curtis, currently in Saskatoon, completing his law degree at the University of Saskatchewan, but he's originally from Vancouver. He went back and checked and found that his first ever listen to Pound the Rock was actually way back on episode 23, which was when we did a reaction pod to Kawhi Leonard being traded from San Antonio to Toronto. So Curtis has been with us for a long time. Said he was a relatively new ball fan when he first started listening and that he's learned a lot about the game from us. Um, thinks it's the perfect mix of smart basketball talk and entertaining takes and banter. Curtis, we try and we appreciate loyal listeners like you have been with us for over 200 episodes now. So, um, Curtis, thank you. We appreciate you. And the usual call out for all of our Pound the Rock listeners out there. We want to shout you out as we did Curtis this week. Hit us up at Joey underscore W Y O U 
on Twitter at Joseph Cachado on Twitter, Joe.Wolf on at the score.com, Joseph.Cachado at the score.com via email, and then Instagram, Joe underscore 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 cash. Let us know how long you've been listening, where you're listening from, what you like about the show, maybe what you don't, and we will get you a shout out on a future episode. Until one of those future episodes, coming to you next week with the playoffs in action, and we'll have actual playoff ball to talk about. For Joe Wolfon, I'm Joseph Cachado. Pound the rock.